Hi everyone, welcome to episode two of IAM's Hybrid Working Podcast. We're joined again by Phil and the two Toms, um, and this episode is going to focus on both the short-term considerations and the longer term um, for businesses and a bit of a chat around kind of thinking in the moment, what do we need to be doing right now and where do we really want to be getting to um, and some of the bigger themes there. So um over to you, Tom Moore. We've been talking a little bit today about those imminent sort of conversations that need to be happening, the kind of things that people really in businesses really need to be thinking about um, to get them started with how they tackle hybrid working. Yeah, thanks, Gemma. I mean, I suppose we've just been chatting, you know, of late, I suppose, about the fact that when we think about hybrid working, um, and I guess the clues in that title there that you were mentioning about short and long-term considerations, it's just that really, that I think we've come to that point now <clears throat> where, you know, uh, we're sort of nearly 18 months into this whole sort of scenario around the pandemic that we can't, maybe not can't, but we, we, we are at that point where we don't have to think reactively so much anymore. Um, and that particularly, I think, with hybrid, it's now a reality. We're kind of back to that point where, you know, there was kind of, are we going back to the office are we not going back to the office and most organizations settled on well we're not quite ready to go back to the office now and then reactively started saying well let's come back in a little bit whereas i think we're at that point where we we, d- we need to start thinking about these things and not just continuing to react or knee-jerk reaction into things we're at that point where we can start thinking and talking about the short medium and long-term scenarios around this um you know and i think from our own experience you know um we, we've started to recognise that as well because we, we've, you know, we're in that position where I think everyone's sort of doing some of their own things. And so I think we need to be consistent in our application. And therefore, we're at that point where as, even as a business ourselves, we need to start laying out our approach in a much more structured way. And I think that's, I suppose that's one of the key methods I think is now is the time to start thinking about it because it's here and it's not going to suddenly go away. You know, I think fast tracking to a year from now or even two years I think it's like it's hybrid so part of this chat of the next 30 minutes is just that really. How do, how do we think you know a business even gets started you know if they are considering this from scratch and they've got these you know as we've talked about already the kind of people side the business implications what you know what does anyone think about even how that would look as a plan? I mean, the first step's got to be... The I, mean, I don't know what the other gents think, but I think... Silence. Oh. <laughs> we had a clash there. Yeah, I think maybe there's a slight delay in some of these lines. Looking at this. Hang on. I'll cut this bit. Okay, let's try again. You, you go, Tom. No, you were about to. You were make. You were going to make my point. So go for oh, it. Oh, okay. Right. See, I think the first step really needs to be talk to your people. I mean, it, it sounds sort of really obvious, but we've all kind of spoken about the need for it not to be a kind of top-down. This is what hybrid is. 
kind of like it or lump it. Um, and there's that human element to it of what do your people want, but also that human element of you're going to be asking a lot of departments to change a lot from you know as simple as how managers manage and lead teams how senior leaders gain overview and oversight how data is gathered and probably most forgotten about the poor it department who goes from here is a nice controlled internal network to oh by the way we've got 600 people signing in from home networks that are of questionable security um you should probably sort that out um and up till now, they've kind of just had to make it happen, which is everyone's favorite phrase in the workplace, as we all know. Um, whereas moving forwards, by talking to them, asking them, learning from what's happened over the past you know, year and a half, businesses could kind of really turbocharge the next year and a half and avoid some of the same challenges and, dare I say, mistakes that have happened over the last 18 months. Yeah, that's a good point, because I think um, one of the key activities, like what you were saying there, Tom, is by speaking to your people, you can learn what has and hasn't worked, because there does need to be that process now of we've had interim solutions in place. We've kind of bought something in potentially quite quick and kind of even may do. And there needs to be that review, including your people to say, well, what did you like and what didn't you like? What systems are working or not working? And what do we potentially need to scrap off um, and look at replacing as a more long-term solution? Or does it work? And actually, let's keep that in place. We don't need to blow more budget money, um, more budgets. And if it's working, but you, your people are going to be a great insight there as to uh, what happens in that space. Because too often we kind of, you see it where technology is delivered to employees rather than being involved in that process of bringing it in. So, so how do we get that information then? How do we have that conversation? Do we have any ideas on whether it's, you know, technology or one-to-ones, like what forums are there for us to find out? I mean, I think a lot of that is going to be driven by the scale of your business. Um, so if you're a small business, I don't think there's really an argument against literally jumping on calls with people and having a genuine conversation. If you have 10,000 employees across several countries, that's less viable, obviously. Um, and that's where you kind of, to, to my mind, you've got things like pulse surveys, um, which now could serve a really strong purpose. Whereas historically, a lot of businesses have perhaps used them for, oh, yeah, we do a pulse survey. Do we do anything with the results? Hmm, questionable sometimes. Now's the time to really look at those and see how what your people think of the solutions. So I think they would be probably the most powerful in larger businesses. Great. And, and how... was, uh, Sorry, Sam, come on. I was, yeah, no, I was I mean, I was I think some of this as well is potentially, you know, it's kind of finding the right time to pull that feedback in and maybe you're going to need to do it at a number of different points. I, I guess I'm thinking that, you know, the point about approaching your people and getting their input is spot on. You know, it's got to start with a conversation. And, I, you know, I think, you know, you look back, um, you made the point there about, you know, um, mistakes. And I think, you know, we look back at our own experiences and we, you know, we've probably made our own mistakes as we've gone through this and you, you only have to open up the papers and you can see the mistakes that some organizations are admitting they've made where they maybe try and take a one size fits all approach to this and say, right, you know, the blanket approach to this is you can work from home two days a week, but some people might say, well, I don't want to do that. Or those two days a week don't suit me. Or, you know, um, I'd rather come to the office, you know, five half days a week, you know, whatever that approach might be. 
So I think you've got to maybe go out and start to get people's opinions. But then maybe I also think there's always a danger, and this is true of anything really, where if you kind of go out with a blank piece of paper, you will probably get every answer, some of which just aren't realistic. So I think you maybe need to find that way of getting feedback in so you can start to understand what are the pet common pain points and challenges for your organization and for your people. And then maybe go back out with some options, frameworks, call it what you will, that articulate the different ways that this could be moved forwards. And then you may even have to try some of those and then learn to be agile off the back of those um, because you may find that you need to evolve continuously uh, as this changes. So that was just kind of my thoughts on how this evolves. Do we, do we think there's a bit of tension potentially between, you know, employees, you know, really hoping that companies will be quite quick off the mark in making this decision and rolling it out, but then also there's pressure on the business to do it right and to pay attention and listen and process all of that. So there's a bit of a struggle there in that balance. Yeah, I mean, I think, but I think that pressure has always been there. For if it wasn't hybrid working, it was something else. Um, there's inherently always a pressure between employer employee um, or I many businesses now don't like the word employee I know but it's technically correct um, that relationship and that that's not necessarily a bad thing I think often we look at that and think oh that's adversarial and that's well why can't adversarial be good adversarial is about challenging the other to do better or to prove a point or to you know work together and find a compromise that works for everyone so in that sense, and that little bit of tension actually works so long as both sides don't take it to an extreme. Um, you know, this is why we have you know, things like unions, I think, are going to play a huge role in that relationship over the next year. Um, and a truer understanding of that role is not about you're in trouble, so you have to go and get this person to help. It's going to be more about representing you know the workforce to the employer about what they want and what hybrid is supposed to be to them um but that's going to require quite a shift in terms of how we all engage with each other um because if it does become adversarial as you as, as you say it's going to become very challenging for anything positive to come out yeah i guess transparency is such a huge part of it and, and companies being able to articulate that yes this is going to take us a while we are trying to you know, be aware and inform ourselves with the best way forward and keeping people informed of that and making them feel part of that um, in that communication, which I guess is fundamental to the success of all of this. I think like, yeah, and I think, you know, the, the big thing here is there's not just transparency, it's communication. You know, and I think the, the, the that sort of antagonism and tension will probably only come if, you know, I think everyone recognises sometimes that these things don't happen overnight. But if you just sit and don't do anything and don't tell anyone that you're, you know, you might be doing lots, but if you don't tell people that you're doing those things, then that tension will build. You know, I cast my mind back to when we were doing a big change program at United Utilities. You know, one of the things that we did very early on was involve the trade union so they understood that the change and what was coming and the fact that change had to happen because of the regulations that were changing. But they were involved early on and they were a strategic stakeholder. And I guess that's just the same, you know, I mean, fundamentally what we're talking about here is just change management and if you do that well and communicate and tell people that you don't have all the answers but maybe there's some things that you're doing immediately you know you might be saying hey look you know there's a few things we can change right now as in you know we can make these benefits available or we can you know make um, this technology available you know whatever they are there's some quick wins you probably can do and you say, in the meantime, we're going to form this working group or do this. And we're going to think about our bigger picture. And when we know what we you know what we're doing, 
will let you know. And then you just regularly keep people updated so that they know what's happening. That's just kind of good best practice that will pay, you know, pay dividends here, I would suggest. Yeah, I know um, a friend of mine that works for quite a large company where they've, um, because of the scale, they've actually let each um, sort of manager decide for his or her team what's best for that team in terms of the hybrid model. So rather than trying to take on that that huge scale and, and take into account everyone's perspective, they've actually empowered, you know, locally um, and just said, we trust you to, you know, decide what's best for your team and work with them. Um, which I guess is one way to to kind of reduce that that um, I guess ask of trying to make it equal and fair across you know a huge organization. But then it has its own inherent challenges when you're letting you know a personal preference or you know a person steer that. Yeah, I think we kind of touched on this in kind of the first episode, didn't we? Where there's going to need to be a shift in what businesses measure. Um, because if the business is still obsessed with who's sitting where and for how many hours were they sitting there, then it doesn't matter whether it's localized or top down. Hybrid doesn't work because you can't measure that and offer the flexibility that is a hybrid work environment. Whereas if you're if you were if that kind of central part of the business does allow some of that power to go to a more local level, allows greater flexibility, um, that's where they're going to see benefits. But you're, yeah, you're actually they're going to face the challenge of not having total control. Um, but there are businesses that have been doing this for, you know, for well, since they were created. That's ha- that's why they've succeeded. It's quite interesting when you look at the sort of super successful tech businesses, whether it's you know Google, Microsoft, Apple. They're not known for their super kind of you must be at your desk nine to five approach to doing work, are they? They're they're known for being cool and hip and at the edge of the business world except now the edge of the business world seems to be all of us which is great surely um so it's quite interesting to see that it's being couched in a lot of businesses as this is a huge challenge unheard of by anyone and yet actually some of the biggest businesses in the world dealt with this problem 10 15 years ago some of them um and they, there's almost they're almost like a blueprint saying, look, this is how, it's worked really well. Look, we're worth several billion dollars on the stock exchange. It can work. Um, you know, it's just, to my mind, it's more of a choice of do you want it in your business or do you just want to say, oh, yeah, we're a hybrid business. Um, there's a big difference between the two. Yeah, I think if you, are, if you are empowering locally, I guess one of the challenges there is that teams look at other teams and say, hang on, why can't I work fully remotely when this other team does? You know, I've got the same role and responsibilities, the same need to be in the office or not. So, you know, a a kind of possible pitfall of that is when you don't have that consistency, you don't have that one rule for all. You open yourselves up to people being dissatisfied by how it's being run in different areas if they don't feel it's fair. And I guess that fairness, that equality, that inclusion piece um, is one of the biggest hybrid working challenges that, that businesses are going to face. Yeah, I mean, it's that whole, I mean, you're kind of touching on it almost like, you know, people feeling disadvantaged perhaps by being in different parts of the business or you know, even that kind of concept of being digitally disadvantaged. How do you kind of create that that balance? Um, that is, it's, I mean, it's a tough one. I think it, I suppose really it kind of comes back to the core values of your organisation. And I guess if you're having some of those challenges, then, maybe the problem is bigger than just hybrid working 
you know, it's kind of like you, you, some of this might, you know, unpick and require you to go back and have a bit of it harder and, and tougher look at, at your at the wider culture that you have um, and to examine that. And that's why some of these things are not going to be quick fixes because they might, you know, um, you know, they may uncover uh, things as you sort of lift one rock and find a load of gerbils and put it back down and lift it back up again and they've multiplied, you know, and it's kind of like that kind of expansion of, of problems, I think will be one of the things that happens with hybrids. And that's why I guess it comes back to that bit around having to possibly be agile and flexible. But I think it does start not only with your people, but probably with your core values. And that's why some of those businesses who probably feel that they've got, you know, a real focus on maybe kind of trust and transparency. And that's at the core of what they do and how they've always worked will probably flex into this very well, but maybe those kind of more top-down or you know, sort of autocratic sort of businesses might find it harder because this is about devolving trust. And it's about allowing people to, if they are dissatisfied, say it and not immediately have the business jump into defense mode that says, we're right, you're wrong, we pay you, be quiet. Um, you know, because historically, yep. usually in nicer terms, but that is how business has worked. Um, I want to work at home. Well, that's not the job you applied for. So too bad. That that would that is that would for a long time have been considered a perfectly reasonable response. Um, now it's just the market has changed where people are finally saying, okay, that's fine. Here's my notice. I'll go and work somewhere that will give me that flexibility. Um, and so whilst it may not suit everyone, I don't think many businesses are going to be left with an option in the long term. I think there's an increased awareness of this now. People know that flexibility is available to them in the workplace for some people for the first time in their working lives. Um, not to mention the fact that we've got several generations now, but it is just an expectation that work will be flexible and that work isn't life. It's the, you know, and that they, you know, they, they do intend to have a very good and sort of powerful personal life around their job and not have their job take over their whole lives. I think that's definitely a piece of kind of training or, or skills that definitely needs to go out as well, isn't it? About people learning to have a work-life balance, um, which sounds odd in some ways, but um, it's kind of the, the typical trap, isn't it? When you work from home that you end up dealing with that particular email because you've seen it ping through on your phone because you've got more technology on your personal phone potentially. So I think there's that kind of, I guess it, falls more into a, a cultural awareness like what we were saying again but making sure that people know that it is okay to sign off you don't have to log on to your app to show that you're online just to make it look like you're working um, so it's kind of like getting it out whether a comms a, a simple piece of e-learning resource whatever it might be to say it's okay to have a balance um, and I think L&D's got yeah. a big role there if not in saying it outright, then embedding it in all the learning. Because I think sometimes we think about, oh, we have, we're going to do a course about switching off. But actually what you want in an ideal world is that message constant throughout every learning experience. Those core, If it's part of your core value of your business, you don't want to just say, well, this is the instance in which we trained our core values. You want to say, well, look, we cover it here in detail, but actually these core values play a role in every single learning intervention because we're always talking about them. Um, and I think that's sometimes the L&D involvement in the cultural bit that gets overlooked. It goes beyond that first instance, that setup piece. It's about that sustained messaging over, over every bit of learning. Yeah, I think bringing this full circle, I suppose, you know, because you're asking there at the start, almost like, you know, if, 
the the challenge might be that you know some people say well hey you're letting me work this one way and that you know let me work this way and someone else is working differently but what you guys have just been chatting about there i guess is we need to give the skills to our leaders to let them have these kinds of conversations and to support almost that devolution of this ways of working because i guess going back to your question there Gemma, if one person's working one way and then someone else isn't allowed to is that maybe because the leader of that other de- department doesn't feel confident or has you know some as you know is, is you know so it comes i think it's about you know um you know i think we had, we came up with a quote the other day that you know which wasn't necessarily ours but this idea of you know people think of your people like chess pieces not checkers you know so everyone's going to be slightly different but you also then need to give your you know your leaders and your managers and your team leaders the skills to help them facilitate this um this change yeah and i feel you sort of talked there a bit about you know the the kind of core values and the culture and we're sort of saying that needs to be in the training i guess that gets especially complicated when we start thinking about onboarding in terms of how do you get someone absorbed in the culture how do they you know how do you get them up to speed with with the values the organization has if they're not in the office if they're not experiencing it and actually you know typically you kind of be thrown in the deep end wouldn't you and and kind of be surrounded by that if we've got you know we've had people obviously that have been onboarded entirely remotely now we've got that opportunity um, to maybe bring them back into the office a little bit but we've got other people that won't be in so the whole onboarding experience has, has changed you know what do you think are some of the challenges around that a lot basically <laughs> i guess is where you start with that um i, I guess it comes back to what well, a, a there's an initial uh need um because if you're going to remain hybrid then potentially you're in the here and now and having to change your onboarding as you go so i think it's important to remember you don't need you don't need it to be final to to roll stuff out, I think, um, across the board, regardless of any technology or any solution that we bring out, everybody always wants to launch it when it's 100%. And I nothing's ever going to be 100% until you put it out there and you, you trial it and you learn from it. With the best plan and mapping of journeys in the world, there's always going to be a, a slightly better way to do a particular piece. So I guess short term, you need to look at if you need to be doing this here and now, what's the right model for your your business it comes down again down to your business how often you are you onboarding people um what is your current onboarding process as well because if you've got like a, a six to eight week program i think you do need to make that call to say does it need to remain a six to week program um, and does it still need to remain in a classroom environment um, i think it would be a very naive thing to say that across the board all onboarding now becomes 70 percent digital and and the rest classroom it needs to be really flexed around the business the skills needed um and how often you are onboarding kind of your people as well because if you're if you're doing it every two weeks then potentially digital is a good solution because it frees up your people to be in the training room when they need to be but equally if you're if you're not doing um kind of inductions and onboardings until every kind of three months and you don't need to do one for another three months you've got a bit of time there well i think you know i mean um we asked Gemma this question a while back so i mean it's sort of but um you know when she went through the onboarding i think the piece that she touched on that was really nice was that you know it, 
I guess it's, these days it's as much a culture shock coming back into business as it is suddenly working from home. And I think the key perhaps with some of this onboarding stuff as well now is remembering to go at the pace of maybe, you know, remember to go at the pace of the people you're bringing in and you might even have to go at the pace of the slowest person, you know, because people are going to respond differently to some of this stuff now and people, you know, have spent, you know, it's not like, you know, I guess I can't remember the stat, but it's almost like, you know, when you try and get someone to change something, you have to do it a certain amount of times before that kind of becomes embedded. Well, I'm pretty sure, you know, 15, 18 months at home, most people are now pretty much sort of used to that kind of environment, bringing people back into the work environment where it's busy and there's lots of potentially lots, quite a lot of people and it's, frantic and there's you know a lot of dialogue going on that can be overwhelming for a lot of people so it's that kind of mental health and that maybe that mental capacity to step into this stuff is something i think that's got to be given a lot of thought yeah it was so it was so good that you you gave me that choice i think typically it makes sense for for so much of onboarding and induction to be in the office and with the people you're going to be working with you know that's how we've traditionally done it um but you know Thankfully, you know, you were very relaxed on that and sort of said, you know, come in for a few days, see how you feel. And I didn't expect to be, you know, as overwhelmed, as drained by the experience because you've obviously you've got the new job and then you've got people that you're suddenly around <laughs> potentially, you know, for the first time in a very long time. Um, and it is completely different than sitting at home, um, you know, coming in and being part of all that interaction and being on um, again. So, yeah, I think companies... I think it's kind of essential to almost put yourself in that person's shoes, but also not make any assumptions about how they're going to find that experience and give them the room to, to kind of modify that, personalize that a little bit. You know, it's, it's really interesting because I, I, I like research. I like reading papers. There's a glimpse into my evenings and weekends at home. Um, but pretty much all the research on the topic says that onboarding training is highly ineffective. It's largely a waste of time, money and energy. Um, and a lot of that is being put down to the fact that we insist on getting 12 people in a room and doing posters about our core values. Or we spend time talking about our previous jobs and our pets and our family. And we kind of enforce these things on everyone as if somehow that's what instills a culture. Um, and I, I read a really interesting article that basically said, if your culture can't be communicated and experienced remotely, you don't have a very good culture. And that really got me thinking about that's That's a really good point. We, we're quite happy to expect, expect and allow people to now work remotely. So why do we not also just demand that our culture works remotely? Whether they never come into the office or whether in the office every day or whether there are some kind of split, your culture needs to be as strong and easily transmissible to that person otherwise you do start creating this kind of second class onboarding situation for someone who's 100 percent remote which i think as we all know is going to be a growing section of the workforce um for many reasons i mean one perfect example being it allows companies from all over the world to hire people anywhere on the planet so you can for the first time say talent is the single most important thing if you're the right person doesn't matter where you are what your situation is we will we will pass our culture out to you where you are we will bring you into our business even if we never meet in person um, and that's a huge opportunity for a business if they're willing to put the work in to create a culture that can actually be transferred and i think that's probably the biggest challenge for onboarding is for those people who will never come to the office and that's the right decision for them what do you think about relationship 
building then, Tom, because I think that's such a massive part. That's that's informal onboarding, isn't it? It's, mm-hmm. you know, getting to meet your team, building that social currency. And, you know, do we all agree that when, when it's face to face, it's quicker, it's easier, it's more natural. And we move that entirely digital. It's going to take longer. You know, we don't always have, you know, the body language. We don't always have, you know, the social side of it. What do you think? I'll maybe start it off with a hot take and everyone else can disagree with me. Um, <laughs> I'm a very unpersonable person. Um, so be, being in a room of five people and talking to them for half an hour is incredibly uncomfortable for me. Um, and th- there are plenty of other people like me. I'm not like some mutant freak. Trust me, I've asked. I made sure. Um, <laughs> my mother had me tested. Um, something like that. Uh, you're, not, you're, not, you're not Wolverine then, Tom. I thought you were always, you're a, you're a Wolverine. No, I, I, would be, I would be one of the far less cool ones that just kind of stays. Oh, no. I, I would be like the librarian in Professor X's school. That would be me. Um, but yeah, it's. I think we have to accept that whilst for many of us, we think, oh, yeah, being in person is easier. There's actually a large chunk of people where that is the part where we don't dislike people, but it's actually much easier and more comfortable for us to communicate and build relationships at a distance um, because it gives us a slightly larger sense of control and we can step away or we can just send messages to each other. There's been this kind of long running thing of, oh, well, you need to see each other. You need to talk. Sending emails isn't good. Some of the best friendships I've ever built up outside of work have been message based as opposed to meeting in person for a long time. Um, So I think part of that is just the fact that there are benefits and challenges both ways, but we have to accept that there's no one, this is the better way to do it for everyone. Um, and there are a lot of people who historically are that person in the business that doesn't get to build up social capital because they're uncomfortable in a group of large people speaking up and engaging in networking. And for the first time now, those people are on an even playing field with everyone else. Yeah, it's thinking about the solution differently as well, isn't it? It's just because you, if you do go down the digital onboarding route, that doesn't mean that you never have to speak to anybody, you know, any of your mm. team, and you just sat in front of a, an LMS doing a bunch of e-learning, and then suddenly you're doing your job. There's a number of different things that you could be putting in there. You could have one-to-one suddenly with your with your um, with your trainer, and you have regular catch-ups with them and say, oh, I can use the data in the LMS. I see you've done X courses. Let's talk about those. And, and what do you want to, to build on? So then you start getting a bit more of a bespoke experience. There's also technology there to do Zoom calls and bring online classrooms. Um, and it's just thinking about those in slightly different ways. Um, you can still create those social environments in a digital onboarding piece and actually potentially be more effective because we know that when people are in a training room we mean tom you've we've been there before haven't we the amount of inductions we've done where people just want to get on and they're, they're sat there but and because you have to build a program around the slowest person in the room you've got these people that are very clued on very quick with potentially certain processes and, and skills they just want to get on and they become very frustrated and unengaged in an induction environment where it's in the classroom so suddenly you've got a speed of speed to competence where people can go at a, a speed that's comfortable to them um it's that good old-fashioned you, you can't you can rush training but you can't rush learning that's kind of what we always threw around so if somebody needs 12 weeks to get fully competent but somebody else only needs eight then why 
suddenly we've got that environment and we set up that environment anyway to allow people to do that so suddenly you know there's an onboarding cost taken away straight away because you don't have them in a in a training room for four weeks when they don't need to be because they're competent at being able to do their job now absolutely yeah my i suppose my reflection is i think back to you know when suddenly everything kind of went remote and we i remember going into the office one day and everyone was in the room and it was obvious that the first lockdown was going to happen and we just sort of said you know what everyone just take their pcs home but actually we operated our business, you know, and I guess we're fortunate in that a lot of what we did was kind of remote anyway, but we, we kind of operated and scaled our business from essentially what was about 10 people to about 25 people. So we didn't need sort of double, tripled it. And that's not just from a point of view of people, but revenue and all kinds of other sort of key kind of business targets. And we did that all, you know, remotely from being based out of our different homes for 15 months and kind of made you realize just what's possible from, from the remote location. Uh, I think as well, you know, my sort of reflection on it now is that kind of try to be smarter about what is good to be done face-to-face and what's good to be done digitally, you know, and sometimes it's just nice, you know, I'm thinking back to, you know, the other day we got our sales team together and we're having a chat because we wanted to think about what was going well and what was going, you know, differently. And that was just quite nice to transplant that out of the office into a slightly different environment and just to have that conversation for a couple of hours you know, but actually sometimes it's just like, hey, I need to get a couple of people together, you know, and that's great that you can just do that when you get onto Slack and there's a few people that you just boom. And, and that's almost the same. And sometimes actually that's easier because we are dispersed, you know, and trying to get that together would, you know, would possibly have taken longer. So I, I sort of think quite hard now about when is it, you know, I'd almost say that it's the reverse. If someone says, hey, I want to come up to the office in Chester, I'm a bit like, well, do we, do we need to? Can we do it differently? You know, it's like, is that the best way to use our time? And if it is like you're coming up, it's like, right, how do we make the most of that time? And how do we get the best out of that? And let's pick the agenda. Um, so it's thinking about how you use your office and those times in the right way, I think, is a, is a real reflection point for me of late. Huge saving potential as well. All these mm. companies with these massive sprawling offices um, may get to think hang on do we actually need a seat for all five thousand people when only two thousand of them are here on any given day um do we want to treat our office more like a potential meeting hub that you can come to if you need to get together and then other than that where you work is kind of your choice within reason um because then you're really making the most of what space you have and even if you say own all the property convert it into more meeting rooms there's not a business on the planet that doesn't always need more meeting rooms um and we can start thinking about how we use those more kind of intuitively to allow for sort of agile meetings or ad hoc things without having to uh, kind of jump through all the hoops that you usually do to book a meeting room six weeks in advance to get it exactly when you need it also, yeah, no, I mean, creative spaces yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's often missed in a, in a business, isn't it? Where it's somewhere you can just go and it's a space where you, it's it's not that meeting environment. It's just a creative environment. You're all at stand up desks in pods, whatever it might be. Um, but if you've got that env- environment to be a bit more creative when you do need that together, you know, you can use the space better, can't you? Um, yeah. And I think it's also going to have a interesting impact on meeting culture. We've all been in those kind of workplaces where you literally spend the entire day running to the, your next meeting from the previous meeting and you you almost book out in your calendar half an hour to eat your lunch because you know that somebody's going to put in that half an hour slot, put another meeting in there. And sometimes you have meetings about meetings. And I think 
potentially people are going to become a bit more savvy about their time and what needs to be a meeting versus what can we just have a bit of a chat about over a social forum um, versus who actually needs to be involved in that meeting as well rather than every man and their dog. Do you, do you think there's going to be a bit of a mix of sort of what you were talking about before of of some organizations redesigning the purpose of the office or what it offers people and others kind of this mass exodus and you know some of the the kind of the scary uh, you know idea of, of having completely abandoned city centers and you know all these all these properties that are suddenly available do you think we're going to see two very different approaches in that space I think certainly. I think a lot of it's going to be driven by money, if, if we're all honest. That's what businesses run on. And there are a lot of people whose entire business model is I rent property to businesses. Um, so they're, you know, they're, they're not going to allow the entire industry to collapse, nor, nor will it ever collapse. There'll always be some market for it, but I think they will have to become um, savvier on what they offer. Um, and, and how businesses are going to be willing to pay for this space if it's not necessary. How many businesses are going to sign up for an unnecessary and large ongoing long-term expense? Um, when you're seeing the rise of places um, like flexi offices and these shared workspaces are becoming hugely popular. Um, I mean, even here in Swindon, it's not like a massive place. They just opened one up here with like 5,000 shared office spaces that you can rent by the day. Um, that's a business that 10 years ago, you'd have gone, what? Who on earth would use that? It's full. It opened up this month and it is full seat for seat for the next couple of months. Um, so there's, I think that shift's already happening. Um, but I think you're actually, there are some businesses that will never change their office and probably should never change. For instance, realistically, do you want someone working in the fraud department of the bank to be on an unsecure public network when they take your call? Probably not. Um, there are going to be environments where businesses, even if they desperately want to go hybrid, say this isn't right for us, our customers or our business. Um, I, I use, you know, we often kind of focus on office based industry when we talk about this, but there are whole industries that this just just doesn't apply to retail. You've got to work in the shop. The postman has to walk along the street and post the letters. He has to sort the letters in the in in the sorting centre. There are a lot of jobs where this is actually going on around them, and there is the danger that they will become resentful of it. And I think that's a long-term implication for other businesses that they need to start thinking about now, is if their business can't go hybrid, what is keeping their people there if they want that flexibility? Great. I mean, I think to just sort of draw us to a close then if we've we've thought about these things we've put some things in place we've talked to people how do we measure it so how do we take that reflection in six months 12 months and know that we've achieved a healthy hybrid know that we've paid attention to people and we're doing the right things and it's working what are we going to be looking for productivity i think is going to be one um you know, you, it, we've all got measures of a length of time typically to do a certain process or piece of work. So if you find that suddenly that the output is is taking a turn for the worse, then I think that's a clear indication that the, the whatever switch you've done is the, the wrong model, whether that's sticking to what you've done and therefore morale is the driver behind lack of productivity or whether you have changed it and actually people are just finding it harder to, to do their jobs. 
Um, you know, I think there's a lot of day-to-day metrics that businesses can use without having to start thinking, well, how do we get all of this new data or creating new data? And there will be some new data you potentially need to create. Uh, but a lot of companies have, have already done employee and engagement surveys for years. So if that suddenly takes a, a, a dive bomb in, in certain areas, then I think that's a clear sign that that's a, a metric that hasn't worked. I think turnover is going to be a key thing as well. Um, we're seeing a lot of people now change jobs out of the blue for a lot of businesses. Oh, one recruiter was calling it, what was it, the, 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 mass, the mass resignation or something they reckon about 60% of people in a survey said yep yeah, i'm considering a, i'm actively looking to leave my current employer um for a lot of in, for a lot of companies that would be devastating um i mean for a lot of companies a 20% turnover of staff would be devastating especially at the moment um so i think it that will be a really key metric over the next kind of year to two years more than it usually is Yeah, I mean, I, I think I suppose that's it, really, isn't it? I think I'm sure that kind of hybrid questions will start to become a core part of employee surveys, really. And I, I mean, the other thing I suppose I was thinking that a lot of this, going back to what you said earlier, Gemma, is probably predicated around sort of almost like diversion, inclusion, equality, you know, um, almost like as well. I saw an interesting thing the other day that was sort of saying maybe it's less about equality these days and more equity. So it's this idea that a rebalance of things, you know, and that's across you know a number of different fronts. And I wonder if that's more like how you can, you know, some of this might be measured more around that as well. Um, you know, there's lots of different ways you can measure that kind of EDI sort of space. Um, but I think that almost becomes part of this really, you know, um, uh, that wider, wider space. I really like the um, the idea. We, we talked a little bit about this on our webinar, Tom, about potentially changing or adding KPIs for managers. So something like that they achieve high well-being in their people. So actually having a look at their metrics and seeing if, you know, some indications of, of successful hybrid can be put in there. You know, if, if this is a piece we're really looking at, the well-being, if this is what, you know, employees are really asking is to kind of have, um, you know, the organization be more hands on and more aware of their their mental health. And let's, you know, put it in there as a, as a metric that we're trying to achieve and measure it as much as we would, you know, performance and output. Yeah, I mean, if that isn't, I guess if, we, if business, if we're serious about it, I guess, then it's something that we'll need to measure across the board, really. And you can't just sort of measure it at the top, you'll need to sort of find a way to track that and to be, you know, to, yeah, to, because again, that probably goes back around to if, if there's one area that's maybe not doing quite so well in that space, it, it, why, you know, is it because they've got a different set of rules? Is it because they're doing a different role? Is it because, you know, they, they're feeling disenchanted because they're the team that has to come in to the office and everyone else is enjoying these huge benefits and flexible ways of working? You know, is it that actually their team leader, you know, hasn't been given the, the right tools to help have the right conversations and everyone's feeling like there's no psychological safety. Um, you know, I suppose those are the only ways you're going to be able to, to unpick some of those things. And I think that's a, that's a real big training need because I think there's been a long-term issue with that area and learning and development and leadership and management where businesses tend to think, oh, yeah, well, we went on a, on, a, on a course and we brought in some mental health first aiders. So, we, you know, that, 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 that's it. That's all we need. And it's like, actually, you've got no concept of this incredibly complex area um, of, of health. And to an extent, I think there's a very strong argument to say businesses shouldn't train internal people to deal with it. What they should do is hire 
trained professionals um, because most corporate L&D teams shouldn't really be designing, um, you know, bespoke mental health training unless they have a training background in that area. Um, because it's it's so specific. It's not like soft skills. It's not like finance, where it's based on facts and spreadsheets. It's based on something incredibly complex that, if you get it wrong, can be devastating to people. Um, and I think that's why it's one of those rare occasions, as, a, as an instructional designer, where I would say you either need to hire in a world-class SME or you need to hire in content created by experts. Um, rather than having a go and deploying it and adjusting as you go, because the risk is just too high to your people. That's where the blurred line is, I guess, quite mm. dangerous, isn't it? When we even we're talking about, you know, training our managers to have those conversations. Well, we're, we're kind of entering into a bit of an unknown, you know, overlap where people are going to get it wrong. I mean, they're not mental health professionals, like you said, in the same that L and D on yeah. potentially, but we're, we're, you know, we are there is a kind of movement into that space of, of the personal. And I think there are going to be some, um, unfortunately, you know, not ideal outcomes out of that of, of maybe well-meaning, but just not, not really trained enough. Absolutely. And I think that's just where the question needs to be asked of is upskilling internal talent always the right answer? It's often the right answer and it's a great aspiration. Um, but sometimes hiring a professional is just the right way to go. Uh, whether that means you have an external service that you use for those conversations or whether you hire in a, you know, historically it's been occupational health, um, but that's often very focused on DSE and the legal side of not getting the company sued. Um, whereas having a mental health professional employed in your business means that they handle those things and that managers know that they've got a resource and it's not a case of, well, therefore you're absolved of all responsibility. It's a case of don't panic. You're not being expected to be a counsellor, therapist, doctor. We actually have a whatever that person may be on staff that you can go to with when this stuff comes up rather than mm -hmm. trying to say as well as your actual business defines job. You also need to do all this extra stuff. By the way, we're not paying you anymore. By the way, you've not got a formal qualification in it, but don't worry, everything will be fine because you've done some e-learning. Um, you know, e-learning and training as a whole can achieve wondrous things in the business, but there's always that border, as you say, where there is the danger of overstepping with this stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, great conversation. Well, thank you, everyone, um, so much. Let's do a quick um, summary then of what's in store for our next episode. That's episode three, um, which is the using tech to be successful conversation in the hybrid working space. So we're going to talk a little bit on um, kind of that 24-7 contact, some of the pitfalls around there of expectations of people sort of emailing and responding um, out of working hours, um, some you know digital fatigue, um, whether digital transformation is something that we should just roll out and replace, you know, all types of learning or solutions, um, you know, leveraging the kind of technology people are using in their personal life lives and of course um the accessibility piece of how do we ensure that you know everyone understands how to use it is comfortable is engaging with it in the same way and that you know we're not um just kind of serving the majority 